boards and CEOs increasingly expect their chief marketing officers to function as strategic partners, leveraging every available tool to uphold brand integrity, foster sustainability, harness the power of data analytics, and proactively anticipate market shifts and disruptions. Hello, I'm Jamie Washington, and my expertise lies in marketing and branding strategies that deliver significant profits. With a career spanning over two decades as a global CMO, I've had the privilege of collaborating with Fortune 500 giants like United Airlines, Dunkin' Donuts, Apple, RCA Records, Gillette, and many others. What you might not be aware of is that the brands you adore are actively seeking you out and strategically tailoring their marketing efforts to resonate with you. This visionary orchestration is driven by none other than the chief marketing officer. On this show, the CMO Connect with Jamie Washington, I delve deep into the realms of data, purpose, and the pivotal role played by the CMO. Let's go in. On today's show, we have the amazing Katherine Campbell, who is the Chief Marketing Officer for Animac Home Mortgage. She is an analytics-driven CMO with over 20 years of digital experience in financial services, selecting, integrating, and adopting over 35 mortgage technologies since 2018. She is a leader in the digital mortgage evolution. She is frequently featured on webinars and was named a Housing Wire 2020 Tech Trend Center and 2022 Legends of Lending. A little bit about Annie Mac. Annie Mac is a home mortgage founded in 2010 and was and they're also headquartered in New Jersey. They employ over 200 people. They also are a leading visionary financial institution that understands the need for digital services, as well as streamlining the digital experience in mortgage lending. I enjoyed talking with Catherine so much. She is truly a visionary. We talked about AI, AGI, ASI. We also talked a little bit about Twitter, and we talked about marketers who are afraid that your job is at risk because of AI. She gives you some steps on what you can do to protect your job. Let's go in. Catherine, well, I love to start the show off with a question. Uh, what is an iconic brand that you can remember as a teenager? Most of the times I ask when you were 16, but it can be just in your teenage years. What was an iconic brand for you? Great question. Well, you're putting me on the spot, but you know what just flashed in my head is Esprit. Do you remember Esprit? This is going, this is probably way before your day. This was, Esprit was an iconic brand that was um, based out of Europe. And they okay. came out, and uh, this is middle school and, and early high school for me. So this is like going back in the late 80s, where they had come out with this just fabric handbag that came in every single color you could imagine. And it was the cool thing to do. It was like right in there with the Madonna era and the neon gloves and all of that sort of stuff going on, you know, Michael Jackson and 
And Esprit really at that time an iconic brand. It didn't last, you know, there is not an Esprit today, but that made a big impression on me how something that I'd never heard of could suddenly become something that everyone has to have. Oh, I love it. I remember Esprit. Oh, I, I remember the commercials. Yes. That's a good, oh, wow. Benetton and Esprit. These, these brands that were such a big deal. Absolutely. And you know what? It's unfortunate that they're not here today. Um, and I wonder, is it because they didn't evolve with marketing? What are your thoughts on that? Since we're talking about it, what are your thoughts? I, you know, I, I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't as in tune then, but it certainly is the every brand. In fact, we're going through a rebrand right now. And it's very difficult for particularly owners or, or people who started a company and they are driving hard every day to stay in that business and drive and grow that company mm -hmm. to see their names suddenly in different lights, right? They've always seen their name in blue lights or green lights. And then we come along as marketers and say, have you ever thought of yourself in yellow lights or, you know, something that's just really wild for them. And, it's, it's typically just that it is a different icon, a different logo. And what happens, and this certainly could have happened with Spree, although I don't know, is that you have your core mission and vision, right, about everything that you are as a company. And if generally the executives and the core value system of the company haven't changed much, you're never going to change your mission and vision statement. You might update it from time to time, particularly with the digital evolution, making sure that you know, technology becomes a relevant part of that mission statement, but you don't actually change who you are. What changes is that you're always focused on not bringing to market what you're selling, but what the market is buying. And people have a difficult concept of that because the buyer, we still buy handbags, right? We don't buy Esprit handbags anymore, but we certainly buy handbags. So why, why don't we buy Esprit? Because they quit likely selling what the buyer was buying, but the mission of why they wanted to do it probably to be a trendsetter in the space and to be a, you know, a, 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 a brand, a, high, right. a highly valued brand shouldn't have changed. Right. Absolutely. And I hate to put you on the spot, but <laughs> you opened the window. So I have to just, I have to jump in like the Barbie movie said, jump out the window with both feet forward. Just went to see Barbie with my three girls yesterday. And it was so amazing. But you mentioned a rebrand and you know, the talk has been Twitter X with their rebrand. And you mentioned, you know, core mission and values. And when you stay with your mission and you stay with your values, you don't really change the brand as much. You may do a, a little bit of a rebrand, but it almost is Twitter has done a repositioning in the market. And I'd love to get your take since you're going through a rebrand. Tell us what you think. Oh, I love it because <laughs> the day that I went to present a concept, so this was just round one. I actually flew to New Jersey where we're based out of, and I, I had a, a whole, I actually printed out the, what's the marketing recommendation for the brand and handed each of them a bound spiral notebook, you know, printed book. And they're like, when's the last time anyone handed you anything printed? And I'm like, cause it's, it's a leap, right? I don't just want anyone looking at a big screen. I want you to hold it in your hand. I want you to see it, feel it. Right. So that day that I went to present, 
is the day after he announced X. Okay. So you're talking about hundreds of millions of users. He gave everybody about a 48 hour notice that he was going to do this. And then he went from a little blue bird to a black X overnight. Right. And this is a, so of course that was a big part of the conversation. And this is exactly what you're saying is true. It's not the founder of the company. It was not the reason they create, they created Twitter that Elon took it over. In fact, his mission is a complete reposition to actually become what he's bold enough to state could be as much as 50% of the entire payment structure of the world. Okay. So he thinks he is creating a payment foundation. So that's a completely different repositioning, a completely okay. different mission, a completely different owner. And so that certainly validates going from a bluebird to a black X. But if you were to go to at Jack, right. And say, Hey, right. we want to make you in 48 hours. We want to just tell the world and, and then become this black X that would have been too much of a stretch for his original mission to have created Twitter. So, uh, or it'd be part of, you know, the leader of Twitter. So you're right. It is a complete repositioning. Absolutely. So I assume when you walked in the boardroom, you did not shock your board of trustees or board of directors with a reposition for any back. I didn't change their mission statement. I didn't change their value proposition. It's the original founders of the company still run Annie Mac and they're uh, very progressive and really understand how to reposition themselves based on market conditions. There hasn't been many industries, frankly, that um, haven't been hit with quite a bit of volatility in the last five years, right? It kind of started in 2018. We could see a struggle in the market, then certainly through COVID and then through the struggles that we have today, the real estate being uh, real estate market being one of the, um, you know, biggest recipients, uh, of recipients of this volatility. So they have really understood how to grow through it. And that is a, a true struggle and a discipline, but understanding that, you know, I'm the first CMO this company brought in because they realize there's something very new about the market that we really need to tap into. And we don't have historical knowledge how to do that. So they did not need to change who they are, but they did need to reposition um, the mindset or the approach to the market based on what the market is now buying, which is a digital mortgage. I love it. I love it. One of the things that I was so intrigued to, to chat with you about is when I was doing a little bit of research, I found that Annie Mac actually has an in-house um what was it? I think it was underwriting, underwriting. And, and please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But I thought that that was so fascinating that underwriting was in-house when usually those that, that know anything about purchasing a home, usually you go through with your mortgage lender, your broker, and then you wait for underwriting. And it's like, where are they? Do they are they at the Pentagon? Who are these underwriters? Do they, do they come up in, you know, to the door, to the surface. It's just like, we don't know who underwriters and you just have to wait. And it's like, the underwriters will get back to us. But I love that I heard that Annie Mac was not only had underwriters in house, but you also have emerged as one of the top leading um, lenders in the U.S. So I'd love to give you the opportunity to talk to us a little bit more about your company and your marketing uh, structure over there. Absolutely. So it's incredible because not only is Andy Mac a real uh, visionary 
place to work, right? Because the executives have so much vision. Right. They recognize the need to service well. And so it's one thing to want to go after the whole market, recognizing there's a digital opportunity, let's say, uh, there's a, a, a place for efficiency in some of the new technology that's available. But at the same time, we can't lose sight of the need to service the borrower very well. And our partners, right? Our partners being the realtors, our appraisers, you know, our title companies, everybody that we're working with. And so having a full end-to-end -end solution in-house means that if a loan gets moved up and suddenly needs to close sooner, or if there is some extraordinary circumstance that comes up in the middle of the loan, we are not brokers that are calling out to some, you're right, some magic box of underwriters, right? That we're hoping we ever, you know, hear back from. And, and then really how much business do you have with that one underwriting right. group, another underwriting group, how much pull do you have to, to get their time attention and potentially make a decision um, that, that could be, you know, a borderline decision so that they actually get to make that call. So that's when, uh, you know, the IMB independent mortgage bankers came along and now more business is done through IMBs than banks. And this is the reason why we have our own set of uh, underwriters. We can underwrite, we are certified to write, underwrite any type of loan. We have over 190 products at, at Annie Mac, and that is very unusual. Wow. Very unusual. There are many companies that might have 30 to 60 products as an IMB. But that is how much they believe in helping every single borrower. You know, we really understand that there, there is not one size fits all, particularly in such a challenging market as we have today. For instance, one product they came up with is called Cash to Keys. And that gives the everyday person the ability to go to market with a cash offer to get their dream home right now and move later. We'll finance the other property for you while you move and we help you sell it and everything else so that you can win that home. When inventory is as low as it is right now, wow. we have to be flexible. This is going right back to what I was discussing. What is the, what is the borrower buying, right? They're buying in a very, uh, limited market, right? Inventory is extremely tight. So we had to go say, well, then what are we selling? We're going to sell what the borrower is buying. Does that change who we are? Actually, no, it's quite in line with our vision and mission statements of being leaders and servicing people well, right? So that it didn't change who we were. It just changed the way we, uh, the products we went to market with. Wow. Oh my goodness. Okay. So with that vision in mind, Catherine, and you being the first CMO, which kudos to your CEO, your COO for being very forward thinkers and seeing that they needed a you. Did you have to come in and build your team? You know, sometimes CMOs, we either inherit a team or we have to build out a team because that's an extraordinary mission. But with that mission, I'm sure you've got a lot of levers going on in your MarTech stacks. So we would love to hear what does your marketing organization look like? You got some digital marketers, SEO managers. What, what's going on over there at Animac? <laughs> Great question. So when I joined, which is really just a couple of months ago now, I, I had we are mostly a remote company. Everyone's you know, working from home. And I had 17 marketers that I inherited, none of which that were particularly digital focused. 
And so that's a little unusual, but but thinking that right now we're looking at a rebrand because we need to refresh the website and everything that that clearly wasn't a focus that they had. So they weren't matching back, you know, marketing positions to that. I looked at the 17 and I actually had them fill out a spreadsheet before I even arrived. I had them all fly into New Jersey. We all had a big powwow for two days. I said, you know, I could either spend 30 Zoom calls trying to figure out who's who, who's really working, what, what you really know, if you really like each other, you know, how this is going, or we can get in a room and hammer it out for two days. So the spreadsheet that I sent in advance asked them in detail, list every single thing you do and are responsible for. Wow. Another column was, how do you wish you were spending your time? What changes do you think could be made in marketing? What technology do you use? And then what are your favorite brands, hobbies, that type of thing? And I did that for twofold. And as CMOs, you know, we have to remember that this is as much change management as it is effective marketing, right? Mm -hmm. I wanted to see, first of all, imagine I hadn't even started and I gave them homework, right? <laughs> Not really homework, just work while they were at work. Um, asking them to, to report something to someone they hadn't even met yet might seem like, I'm not really sure. I'm, I don't even know this woman. I don't know if I want to give her my time yet. So let me see who's just like willing to participate. Let me see how much strategy there is for those who do participate. Like, you know, when I say, what do you wish you were spending time on and what changes do you think could be made? Some things were very obvious. Do they get that yet? Am I walking into people who have any concept of what really needs to be done here? And I have to tell you, all 17 of them participated so well that I almost felt like I just knew exactly what to do with them when I got there and it proved to be true. And by the end of day one, after some of these people years working together, we realigned the team into everyone having a different role than what they walked in with that day. Wow. You can imagine, you know, and I have to say there was some confusion, but a lot of energy and enthusiasm behind it because basically there's such a collaborative group of people and they did understand what needed to be done. There was a lot, a lot of strategic thinking here. They uh -huh. just didn't have sort of the, the empowerment to achieve these ideas that it, they were sort of just finding initiatives and, Hey, let's you and I work on this initiative. And then I'll go get someone else to work on this initiative with me. And you three go work on that initiative. It wasn't like there were clearly defined roles. So the first thing I did by the end of the, end of the day is create three categories in the marketing department and put everybody into a pretty clear lane. And I think it, there was a lot of relief, like, okay, this is my one job now. I love it. So you delegated responsibilities um, as well as you encouraged autonomy. That's exactly right. That's right. So <laughs> there's, there's a director over each of these, uh, these, these lanes, these teams, and mm -hmm. then there's a, you know, a, a very dedicated set, the admin and analytics team, they really had not dove into BI and marketing. And so, you know, we're training these guys that I feel like have very strong capabilities to learn the tools and our KPIs and how it's relevant to marketing success. Uh, and then we have the brand and creative, you know, so we have a copywriter and a couple of creative designers and a social media person. And uh, again, developing this whole new brand. And then we have MarTech. MarTech is a huge undertaking with us touching 52 technologies. And they really didn't have the bandwidth or even understanding that we needed to take ownership from a marketing perspective on all of these. Wow. The MarTech stack, 
it it can grow and it can grow and it can grow. And you have 52 in your MarTech stack right now? Well, 52 technologies we touch. We have around 20 okay. in our MarTech stack. Okay. So okay. You know, it's like when I came into the company, they're like, oh, good. Okay. A marketer that, you know, again, not really having a lot of history with marketing professionals. When I asked about, say, oh, the e-closing solution, it was like, what do you care about the closing docs? Like you're marketing, you're like you're way up, you know, trying to get people in the door for marketing. Well, you can imagine if we build a new website and we say, this is what it would look like when you close. We have, you know, online digital uh, documents for you to easily sign from your phone. If they change anything about that process, which of course there's always new development and of course it will change, we wouldn't even know to change it on the website. If they change the link structure, which of course they do, of where you're going to sign, then the conversation in our automated emails is going to change. So it, it was kind of like at first, like what does this woman keep popping in on, on, on mm -hmm. my technology calls forward to, oh wow, this is great. So we actually created, we'll have our first meeting here soon, uh, what I'm calling a tech task force. So that end to end through the company, we are looking at the entire journey that we're putting a borrower through from beginning to end in that technology, likely touching without them knowing it because of SSOs and integrations, they could be touching 15 technologies, right? Everything mm -hmm. through funding. And then our loan officers, if our loan officers touch the technology, it all comes back to a user experience that eventually gets relayed to a borrower and marketing needs to understand the consequences of that. And uh, I think it's people are very excited to kind of get their arms around, you know, this has just been mass adoption in the last four years. And that's where the CDO CMO line gets really blurred. Oh, wow. As you're, as you're talking, Catherine, I um, gets to one of my next questions of what type of CMO are you? You know, we know we have data driven, um, purpose driven, customer centric. I feel like you're all about the consumer, which I love, but I want to hear from you. What kind of CMO would you say you are? How would you label yourself? You nailed it. I'm, I'm glad I got that across because look, we've got one job to do and that's to sell and close loans, right? Really, really close these loans. And it is so exciting when an industry goes through an evolution into digital mm -hmm. in San Francisco for 20 years, I got to watch almost every industry go through this, right? From the car insurance days and uh, life insurance. I was a big part of, you know, transitioning life insurance into a, a web-based capability and every industry travel, look at us, education, it's all become digital. But this is one of the most laggard and frankly, it is not only one of the most frustrating because of the amount of detail and paperwork and um, you know, the transaction is large. It's something you don't do very often. And it's one of the most significant things you'll ever do that also has this humanistic piece to it. And, and people can forget that, right? We're not just getting a home because it's an investment, although there are investment, you know, there are investors. I'm talking about if you're getting your primary residence, which is well, the majority of the transactions, right. it, it is, you want your family to grow up in it, or you want, you know, to downsize, or you want to have your grandchildren be there. There's, there's a big humanistic piece to it. And so you're so desperate for the outcome of the mortgage, which is to live somewhere that you almost will do anything the, the 
lender tells you to do. Oh, you need me to send this document 17 times? You want me to go find a fax place at midnight? You want me to show up inside? I'll do anything you tell me to do, right? You want me to give you my birth certificates of all my kids? I'll do whatever you tell me to do, right? <laughs> and, and you've been yes. there. Huh? Yes, I've been there. <laughs> it, 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 you're just so at the mercy to get to the dream. Yes. And what I very much aim to do thanks to the capability of technology, which is more capable and the borrower more ready than the lender has really understood to adopt. And so I, I really feel the need to help transition the industry as a whole, but make it a wonderful experience for the borrower that they can enjoy yeah. in fact and really understand you know, it's not, no one says the day after a closing to their friends, hey, come over, let's have a, I just borrowed $400,000 house for me, right? That, you know, they're, they're like, it's, it's right. not talking about the money. They're, it's a house warming, not a loan warming, right? So it should not feel like a necessary evil. It should feel like the investment that you are making is just as critical as the humanistic reason that you're doing it. I love that. I love that. And so also having that mindset, Catherine, I feel like you also would increase customer loyalty because if I, Jamie, purchase from Annie Mac and I have that from beginning to end, uh, great user experience as a customer and all of those touch points of me dealing with Annie Mac, I am excited that I not only have loyalty that I'm going to tell my friends, my family, you all have to go with Annie Mac, but also when it's time, as you mentioned, um, we evolve. Sometimes you want to downsize, but sometimes you have to upgrade when your families grow. I'm going to return because of that experience. Is that part of your plan or you just know that that's how everything will evolve? Oh, Jamie, don't you know that is a big part of my plan. And, you know, this is this is theoretical to this industry for some reason. And it's very bizarre to me because salespeople, particularly the mortgage product is not a simple one, particularly when you have 192 of them. Right. So it's it's not simple. And these salespeople are not your traditional just, you know, salespeople. They are very intelligent. They are very well educated. They are very focused on how serious the process is and uh, they only eat what they kill. Like by and large, loan officers in our country are commissioned, you know, almost commissioned only a lot of them. So that means that they are very focused on getting this transaction right because, you know, the consequence of not moving on time is a really big one. And then on to the next one. And loyalty is where the residuals come from in this industry. And because uh -huh. it's not like women's shoes, right? Like I buy women's shoes all the time. If you could get my loyalty, you know, you'd be, <laughs> you could like dedicate your income to it, right? This is what you're only going to do maybe every four years, but the average person actually will do 11 mortgage transactions in their life. Okay. okay. So if you could go after that first time home buyer, it may feel like, oh my gosh, I don't have the time of day for this condo. This 22 year old wants to move out from her parents and they gave her a little bit of money to go buy a condo and it's only, you know, $70,000 and I don't have the time, right? Mm -hmm. but if you do a good job, Jamie, exactly how you just said it and you make it great. You have 10 more potential transactions. Oh, this person. And then guess what she is? She's a first time home buyer. Guess who her friends are? They're going to be first time home buyers. And guess what they're all going to do? Have babies and need to go 
up again, right? So it is hard to kind of see the longevity when the product lag is so long between transactions. But if you filled your database up with a loyal database, you wouldn't have to go find the business so much because eventually they just start flowing in. You just gave me chill bumps when I thought of the LTV on a first time home buyer and you just said 11 times. And for our listening audience, um, LTV is lifetime um, value. So we, as marketers, we look at the lifetime value of a customer. Um, and if we start at 70,000 as that first, can you imagine what the 11th purchase could be? Oh, you're talking in the millions, absolutely. In the millions, and that's just one person. That's just one person. Oh. So, oh. so when you have a, as much margin as you tend to have, uh, the mortgage, mortgage product, the cost per funded loan, the margin is shrinking because it's, again, a very difficult market and the technology is so expensive. But we still have more margin than women choose, let's say, right, for every transaction. <laughs> when you have more margin to play with, uh, you know, you definitely want to make sure the loyalty is even, you know, that much more uh, consistent. Amazing. Now, Catherine, I have to ask you, if you weren't a CMO, what would you be? A CDO. <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, just, I just really love this work. Yeah. I love the balance. You know, I... I, I tried to be a CEO. I, I, I resonate with my CEOs really well. I have a lot of empathy and understanding of what they're going through. I follow the financial markets. I think it's critical that I don't only understand that when I go to market uh, with messaging, but that I train my own marketers on understanding the financial markets. And, and so that's very important to me. But I the very, very difficult decisions around reducing uh, you know, headcount or, you know, potentially merging and doing the expense of acquiring a company. That's a little bit out of my comfort zone. I mean, I would know how to downsize or increase my own team, but, um, you know, I, uh, other than, you know, being in financial services, I, uh, I, I can't imagine anything I'd be doing full time. I have lots of little of my own little company ideas I'd like to do. I love to garden and I think there's all kinds of things missing to, to garden well out there for the everyday person. And I think of little products that I'd love to create, but this is what I love to do. I love it. I love it. I, I love it. Um, let's forecast 10 years. Uh, we've talked about Martech stack. We've talked about the ever evolving um, digital space that we live in. I, you know, AI technology, although we know AI has been here for quite some time, AI is just more now accessible to the general public. <laughs> um, where do you see the marketing industry in 10 years? You know, what would be different and what would be the same? It's a great question. So, you know, today we really just have A&I, right? So that's, that's the natural uh, uh, AI. And that's a, a, a singular capability. So if you think of like Siri, I'm asking you a question, you can answer a question. And that is all that it's capable of. When we get to the next generation of AGI, and, and we're not there yet, it's, it's more conceptual, but we're pretty close. That's when you're really getting to, um, you know, uh, really the capability of a human being. 
So that, that, that AGI is where a reasoning could be happening, where an action is created out of a previous action. So this is where um, Steve Wozniak, uh, you know, was a co-founder of Apple. He has a concept around AI that is uh, the coffee maker, where where somebody, a robot, not somebody, something, a, ro a robot would walk in your house and be be asked to make coffee. So there is at least an initiation that is outside of the robot's mind. Okay. But from there, it can reason. Well, I I know I need to find a coffee maker. I know I need to find the coffee. I know I need to find the cup, right? So that it would actually look and one task would lead to another task. That is certainly where marketing will have a massive shift. Because if you imagine that you set a marketing machine to grow based on some metric, let's say it's to grow traffic in general, right? Not even conversion, but just traffic. So let's start with that. Well, it's going to know that it needs to do social media posts so it can then write those social media posts and for us in a compliant way, because those, those rules would have been set, right. release it based on the best time where it's the most likely to be read for the audience you're going after. So it is, and then building a blog, let's say, and adding it to your website to lead them back to traffic on your website. So th this is like one cause to another effect is likely will happen in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then I think we're probably more years than that, more than a decade away from the final sort of, uh, you know, epitome of AI. And this is maybe the danger zone of AI, which is ASI, which is your super intelligence, artificial super intelligence. And, and that is where it has thinking beyond our human brain capability. And that's where the responsibility, you know, can it build itself? Could it build another whole site for you in a whole other industry based? So in other words, could it build a title company out of a, out of a, out of a lender? You know, could it actually build? And that would be more like an ASI sort of deal. So that mm. is the evolution. I, I hope I'm part of it when it happens. I think it's fascinating, uh, but it still is a long way away from not needing a lot of human interaction. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, um, a few digital marketers in our community, we have a community of about, of about 14, 15,000 social media managers, digital marketing managers, and about 63% of them have budget. And so they're in my little community and we talk and we survey. And I was... I don't know what the, I, I was taken back with the fact that several of them felt in the next three years, they won't have a job because they felt that AI would completely eradicate their job to the point that we would not need a digital marketing manager to conceptualize the actual campaign itself and then input that into AI to then export you know, well, you should do six podcasts. You should do 15 blog posts, you know? Um, but it's this scare and this fear in the marketing community that in the next, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, that our our industry will, will cease to exist. 
What do you think about that? How can you encourage or speak to that for, for maybe our listener that may be concerned that their job won't be here? I think it's a great point. And, it, and it's something to, to consciously decide, right? Be aware, educate yourself, and then conscious, consciously decide. When I first started in the mortgage industry five years ago, my CEO asked if I would come in and help them build a point of sale system and launch it to the company. And I said, I cannot believe you guys don't even have a point of sale system yet. Like to apply online, this is new in mortgage. And it was new, right? In 2018, in 2018, they had fax machines in their offices. Okay, this is this was still new. So I told him specifically, I said, okay, here's the deal. I'll come build it if you tell the candle makers electricity is coming. And he's like, it's just a point of sale system, Catherine. I'm like, oh, you think it's just a point of sale system. And then four years later, 32 technologies, you know, uh, that we took on and integrated. He realized, of course, it wasn't just a point of sale system. It's a digital revolution in this, in this industry. Mm-hmm. That is just like our industry. So the loan officer who used to have the title of being a really good order taker, making sure all of your documents were there, making sure that the file was nice and neat. And I mean, the literal physical file was nice and neat and correctly stapled into the folder. Right. No longer their job. Right. That's all just the, the borrower logs in, the bank transactions get pulled in, they get sent, you know, through a digital transfer. We're not faxing anything. We're not signing anything right physically and at the application of the loan. So now the loan officer has to really become a loan advisor. They don't need to shuffle paperwork anymore. The technology can do that. And they just have to reposition themselves. Do they still make the same amount of money? Are they just as needed? You better believe it. And so that's just like today, if content writers think, oh my gosh, you know, my, my, my worthiness was how clever I am. You know, my, what a clever writer I am. And you can go into chat GPT four and impersonate any persona, right? So you can, you can say, give me mm-hmm. content about a, um, a conventional loan, right? And it's going to just give you some boring content. And then you can say, act like a pirate. Right. Act like a first time home buyer. Act like a what you know, act like a policeman. You can impersonate any persona and have that that clever content like she was talking, thinking she owned produce itself. And so, no, that is, you know, difficult if that is really your talent. But somebody has to today still go in and decide the persona to tweak it to where it's still completely compliant for your company. Decide the SEO strategy that matches back to the content that she decides should be written. So there, yeah. whether or not she writes every word doesn't mean she can't have, you know, but, but what I won't do anymore in a few years is give her three weeks for that assignment, right? I, I uh-huh. around in three days based on her understanding the SEO strategy. So oh, until yeah. we get to the AGI uh, level of, of AI, there is still a marketer making all those decisions. I love that. And I love what you said as far as going with the content writer. You're you're encouraging collaboration with the AI, but you're also showing that content writer, um, you're showcasing AI's limitations, acknowledging that AI has limitations and it cannot replicate a human creativity, our emotions, our even storytelling abilities. And, 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 but it reinforces 
the need for AI, as you said, we're not giving you three weeks because you got that tool now. We know you have AI. So you can get this done in three days. Put in those long tail keywords, get that to me within 72 hours versus I'll see it in the mid, you know, mid month, um, which allows it, it, it's more of accountability too. Exactly right. It is, it becomes pure performance marketing at that point. Right. So yeah. we are not back in the days of, I know 50% of my marketing works. I just don't know which 50% it is, right? We're not back in those days. We haven't been there for a little while, but there's an extraordinary amount of marketing content in general that we, we justify doing, we pay SEO companies for, we trust that, you know, Google's algorithm, which changes all the time is, you know, uh -huh. some of this we're catching up with. But when you can ask ChatGPT to, first of all, write it, then write it in the persona that you want to be relatable to the market in, and then write it with SEO optimization. Uh -huh. we, are, we are spending considerably less time on third-party tools, but the strategy, unless you have an SEO expert in-house, this strategy still needs to come from somewhere, even if it's written in a way that's SEO optimized. So, you know, are we going after construction business? Do we want the millennial buyer? What does a Gen Z buyer, you know, need? What regions are, you know, the highest propensity of new home construction? You know, so those types of things, again, are not collaborated in an AI tool yet. True. True, true. So we have a lot to look forward to in the marketing industry for the next 10 years, you all have heard it from Catherine. So all of my digital marketing managers, content writers, SEM um, employees, please, you guys, your job is secure as long as you continue to evolve. <laughs> um, yes, so I, I wanna talk about, um, as we're getting to the end, I wanna kind of talk about this Wall Street Journal article that uh, Spencer Stewart, uh, they did a study and it was, it was published in the Wall Street Journal and it talked about CMOs having a 40 month lifespan. And it, all, it also just pictured us as so salacious, like we are the, the hardest and the most difficult of the C-suites <laughs> and we live in silos and we don't cross collaborate. And I was really kind of taken back by that. I was like, I don't know any of my friends that are CMOs that like I couldn't call and say, you know, hey, like Catherine, I going over this, I can't figure it out. Can you help me? Like, I, I just don't know anyone that has been like, no, or I'll get back to you in like three months, Jamie. I'm like, oh, my friends are always there to help. They're like team players, but this is the study. And, you know, I would love to just hear from you. You know, why do you think that that's our industry norm? So um, I haven't read this. What, when did that come out? When did that publication get released? Yes. So when this is over, I'll send you a link. So this, I want to say it was at the end of last year. And basically what they did was they actually 
interviewed about, hmm, I want to say, I, I don't, I don't want to say numbers, but the C-suites. So it was the CEOs, the CFOs, the COOs, and CMOs. And this was the study that came out and it just, and it was all about, um, and the, the title was Average CMO Tenure Holds Steady as the Lowest in a Decade. Okay, so now that's interesting, the title itself. And I, I definitely would love the link. I, I certainly want to go read that. So yes. There's a massive difference in a private company and a public company. So if these are publicly traded companies, the CMO is reporting in all of the time. The challenge there, uh, so they're certainly not collaborative. They're certainly not working in a silo, but I have, you know, have had numerous jobs. I've been interviewed and reported to CEOs numerous times, and they never have asked me a marketing question that would help them navigate my actual skill set. Right. So because they don't know marketing, so right. they, they bring on marketers and it's usually someone they like, right? Because it's like, okay, if you say you can run a campaign, you, or I don't know what that means. I don't know what a UTM code is. They don't even know to ask, you know, who builds these things for you? Where do you, where do you work? What is a, what are the KPIs in a, you know, conversion? Um, mm -hmm. they have no idea what to ask. And so by the time it's probably is about 40 months, you know, maybe at the third year mark, they're like, we've given him or her three years, you know, our market share hasn't grown. The expenses are enormous. And that is true, right? But true SEO paid campaigns where social media has gotten in the last few years, the expenses are so big and we're yes. all struggling to get to the other side of ROI on every single initiative that we have, particularly if you have a big lag and and engage from engagement to conversion like you would with a mortgage right so financial services credit card would be simpler um and then how competitive it has gotten online so it used to be that literally only rocket mortgage was out there buying keywords right and then the loan depot and better.com and, and all of a sudden these e-lenders came on board and when people like us decided we better get in the the e-mortgage game the keyword became very expensive, you know, just yes. recently this happened. So if these CMOs were publicly traded and with something like a, a very small margin, like let's say women's makeup in a very competitive field like that, there's just not enough wiggle room to justify any wasted expense. And so either the marketer themselves could not have been qualified um, or the expense is just um, something that they don't understand might equal to a long-term growth. I, I'm guessing, you know, I don't know. I'm mm -hmm. interested to read the article, but there's no doubt that there's less um, tolerance for marketing spend than there is for sales spend, because depending on where the references of the CEO, they often can understand efficiency in marketing and spend in sales versus efficiency and the, the, you know, speed to lead and making sure the sales is efficient and letting the growth and marketing spend happen. Hmm. Yes. You know, you mentioned even <laughs> marketers and, and CEOs, and sometimes they just, sometimes a CEO will just hire someone that they like, but that may not be the best um, CMO for them. 
I also think that sometimes the CEOs, when you were talking like even private and public traded companies, if the CMO doesn't match the vision of the CEO, you know, we were just talking about like customer centric and purpose driven and data driven. If a CD, if a CEO is data driven, they are all about the numbers. And then if they hire um, a purpose driven CMO, then it's more about the cause and why are we doing this? And the CEO can get frustrated and say, no, the data is saying this, let's push this, let's push this. Um, and they don't ask the right questions like you just said. Sometimes they don't even ask marketing questions because marketing is multifaceted. Build the brand, build a business, build the equity, solve a societal problem, solve a business problem. We're doing all of these things in like brand strategy and growth modeling, but I think it's difficult if a CMO comes in and they don't have a clear vision from the CEO. And so I would love to know from you, when you came into Animac, um, did you did you have that clear vision? Because your plans that you've shared with us this last you know few minutes is spot on. I mean, I am so excited to be on this journey with you and watch what you are getting ready to do. I'd love to know like the collaboration. Help us be better CMOs to our CEOs, Catherine. Really good point, Jamie. So yeah, you're right because some CMOs are so purpose driven. They're CSR, uh, you know, their corporate social responsibility. But but look at all the engagement we have with St. Jude or you know whatever it is. Like, do you see? You know, you're right. It, it is a really good point. And to be honest, I haven't thought about it because I am so conversion and bottom line driven that okay. particularly in financial services that is very attractive in the interview. But what they don't know when you get there is what it takes to make that happen, right? So they're like, wait, what, what do you mean we need to rebrand? Why do we need a new website? What's wrong with our website? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, do you use the internet? I mean, how, how do you not know what's wrong with our own website? But again, they're, they're seeing that with a lot of filters on, right? No doubt about it. So here's how I uh, feel like I am winning them over on some of the big spend agendas that we have. And, and they have been really great. I mean, they have given me hours of explanation and reporting to, to help them understand the decisions that are being made is that we have to still, we, we are the people, we are the marketers that are transitioning the world from a very analog environment to a purely AI environment, right? We, we're it and we're just stuck in the middle here. And that's why we're like, I don't know. I'm not too comfortable. Where do I live in this space now? Right? We, we didn't know we signed up for it when we became marketers, but we did. So we're still in a place of needing to traditionally serve the company. And I call that marketing as a service. And you need to go and say, how am I helping this company? Well, we didn't even have a monthly newsletter. Well, okay, everybody, all the all the managers, give me all your content. We're going to do one big glossy, slick, cool, engaging, mobile optimized newsletter where people can find out the dates and the trainings and the HR and the, when the yoga is on Thursdays and, you know, and all that stuff, right? <laughs> and that's marketing as a service to the company. We need to make sure that we create a literally a paper flyer, a really slick paper flyer when we come out with a new product that, that a loan officer can hand to a realtor and say, let me walk you through this. It just is easier to, to have a conversation that way. So that's all marketing as a service. And then there's marketing growth. 
And the marketing growth is going to be digital based. There's a digital footprint there. And without us justifying the spend, explaining the opportunity and knowing the market to go back and say, this is the trend. Um, that's where, you know, the CEOs can get lost in understanding, Hey, I brought you here to help me with my company. And now you're off trying to go after like Ohio, right? It's like, what's going on with that? Right. It's definitely our job to do both. Oh, wow. Okay. And while we're still on that same frame, you had mentioned earlier about a tech task force, you know, years ago, there was talk that CMOs didn't have a seat at the table and we weren't invited to the important meetings. You know, they would come out of the meetings and just say, Hey, we're getting ready to run this. We're getting ready to launch this. We want you to put up a billboard. And you're like, what? A billboard? No, we need to do X, Y, and Z, not a billboard. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, you know, you kind of peeking into the technology, you know, meetings and, you know, giving your input in other meetings. And, you know, they may have said, oh, what's marketing doing here? And you, you, you mentioned that tech task force. Um, what do you, you know, why do you think first that it's, we aren't even invited to those meetings and how can we change it and how can we maybe build our own tech task force and you know and, and, and have that confidence to go into those meetings uninvited and say hey can you tell me from beginning to end what's your process because i need it for marketing absolutely so this is where it is our job to explain why it's important for us to be part of it, right? So we don't just go busting in on the meetings. It was just like when I explained to the head of operations who probably never even had a conversation with marketing before, this is why I need to be engaged in your e-closing solution. It made sense to her. Oh, I see what you're saying. I'm like, yeah, so I don't need to run the technology call. I just need to have some kind of a regular cadence so that when they're making optimized changes to their technology and they will, we're aware of it on the front end for communication purposes. So that's, and I actually created the tech task force. The CIO was like, what a great idea. Like, you know, he didn't even think about it because there's no way for as fast as technology is being developed that anyone in the company can keep up with all of it, not even the CIO. So it becomes important that we work as a team. You know, I'm the very front end, right? I'm going to be lead generation, the CRM, automation, communications, right? You're going to be... Uh, you know, the uh, database management and integration of sales tools and sales enablement and alerts. And you're going to be right, the actual loan processing and you're going to be loan closing. Uh, and so what technologies are we using and which ones very important to discuss are suddenly becoming redundant? Because if we have 52 technologies, one of which let's say is a listing service, a Google listing service, all it does is make sure that all of our 60 branches and our corporate, everything stays current, that we're looking at the SEO. And then our social media um, platform that we, we publish through suddenly offers a listing service. Well, can we go say, hey, you know what? It's less expensive to just have the one vendor instead of having two vendors. And so it takes a, team to go through and analyze the full end-to-end -end solution the company is using. Oh my goodness. You guys have heard it 
from the best. You've heard it from Catherine. So now we're going to all go out and build our own tech task force. Um, and I also just want to say, uh, Catherine, as we're coming to an end, thank you so much. I um, Just to kind of let you know how this series started, I put out a couple of LinkedIn posts. Um, I have right, right now, I think I have, I think I'm connected to 7,600, I don't know how I have so many connections, but anyway. I have 7,600 connections, and then I've got about 9,000 followers, and I love my community on LinkedIn, um, and that's kind of where I live. I mean, I'm on Instagram, of course, and Twitter and Facebook, because you got to be there in all those places. Now I'm on threads, um, <laughs> but I live on LinkedIn, and I put out an email, Catherine. I was like, I want to talk to CMOs. Like, I have friends that are on the Forbes list, top 150, but it's easy when you have, you know, a $100 million budget, you know, <laughs> marketing budget. It's like, it better work. That's Whatever right. you're doing, it better work. That's right. But I want, you know, but I was like, no, I want to talk to those that are innovative, that are that are working on innovative strategies. And I had 866 people comment with a name of a CMO that I should look at. And your name came up a few times. And so, yes, your name came up a few times. And I guess it was something with FinTech. It started with something, I don't know where you were or something you did. It was something with FinTech. And yes. And so I got a few DMs and I got a few emails and then I started trolling you. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't have fans, but I might have trollers. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> they told my team. I was like, we gotta find her. We gotta find her. And I'm just so glad and I'm just so grateful. Um, because it's just been so great getting to like know you and know more about you these last few weeks. Um, and if somebody wanted to just, you know, get in contact with you and find what you're doing and, you know, find out more about Annie Mac and the 190 products. How would they do that? Thank you so much. That's nice to hear. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, LinkedIn, I agree with you. I, I basically live on it. I think it is by far, um, you know, the fastest, as fast as the market is moving. And I mean, all markets, not even just smart mortgage. It is the way for us to learn what's going on really globally. So LinkedIn, you know, Catherine Campbell, or the CMO of Annie Mac, uh, or just email me, kcampbell at annie-mac.com. I would take an email. I love these conversations. I think it's uh, our responsibility, particularly at this level, to help everybody evolve. We want people to have good experiences and we're the ones that get to design them. So thank you. I'm so glad to have met you also. You've just been awesome. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And we look forward to continuing to follow you. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks.